As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and as the prospect of Aston Martin Honda moves closer and Alpine reveals some top-level internal friction, what was Daniel Ricciardo's Alfa Tari seat-fitting all about, and could it be bad news for Nick de Vries? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to tackle these wide-ranging topics are Scott Mitchell-Mound and Valentin Horinji. Well, Val, we'll say hello to you. I want you to tell me how I'm getting on with pronunciation of your name. How close am I? You've been fine this whole time, and I, I honestly almost... Every podcast I do, and I do a ton of podcasts because I'm booked all the time and super, you know, superstar. But it, it seems to come up all the time that people are really nervous about how to how to pronounce the surname. And you you did fine. And even if you didn't do fine, I wouldn't be impolite enough not not to say it. But I don't know. Do you do you want to do you want the original pronunciation? Yeah, I'd like some authenticity. It's less about nervousness and it's more about respect for your name. Uh, right. So it's Harundri, which is I think an army rank among. Donskoy Cossacks, maybe the Polish army at some point. I've been told this many, many times and I've never quite remembered it. But yeah, that's basically it. But the, the, the English version you do is it's completely fine. Excellent. There's a whole new podcast to this on the etymology of names. I think that'll be very good. Scott, how are you? My, I know my pronunciation of your name's okay. Perhaps you could tell us about the etymology of the Malm that you added to your name last year. Uh, <laughs> well, I can... the the. Do you want the actual etymology of uh, of Malm itself, or why I adopted the name? Because why I adopted oh, the name is pretty self-explanatory. Um, well, because I, I wasn't really well broadcast. Oh. I got married last year, which was uh, which was lovely. But no, um, it, it's uh, it's not quite an army rank, but it, um, I think it comes from um, a time in which Swedish or Scandinavian names. Um, the, the the names derived from certain things that I guess like the area around them were were prominent for, and I'm pretty sure Malm. It, it, I think that's sand. I think it's sand, but I, I could be I could be completely wrong. I could be about to um, absolutely um, embarrass myself in front of my uh, new uh, Scandinavian friends. But yeah, unfortunately, it's not as uh, not as exciting as something. Uh, the, the thing about sand is it's coarse and rough and gets everywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. This, this is definitely, we should have this as a regular feature. I'm going to start exploring the, the names of everyone. Oh, a- actually, I think, I think I've got it wrong. I think Ma- Malm, I think, I think it's sand. I think, I think it's sand in some part of Europe, but in like old Norse or whatever it comes from here, I think it's metal. It's like iron ore or, or something like that. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. I think I remember you mentioning this one before. I think I've said this to you before. This isn't as interesting as the other day when I taught you the origin of Volvo. No, well, I, I knew the meaning of Volvo, but I didn't know the actual reason they adopted it. And in fact, since you told me yesterday, I've already forgotten the extra bit of the story. So uh, I knew it was Volvo is from the 
Latin to rock. Ball, ball bearings. Ah, yes. Ball bearings. And I said it. So it's just like Red Bull Racing origins and ball bearings. Of course, Red Bull Racing's factory was originally a ball bearing factory. Changed quite a bit since then. Well, well, for the for the seven people still listening to the podcast, shall we crack on? Name etymology, ball bearings. These are all the stuff of podcasting legend. Anyway, let's actually get on with the, the topic at hand then. So, Scott, can you update us on talk of the Aston Martin link up with Honda for 2026 that's being talked about? Those rumours seem to be gaining some traction. So what exactly is the likelihood of this happening? Uh, I think it's extremely likely. I think, um, I think first of all, I, I'm a hundred percent sure that if Honda commits to 2026, it will be with Aston Martin. Um, and I am 1995% sure that Honda will commit. Um, there's a little bit of conflicting information on whether or not Honda has made that decision already. Um, but it is definitely veering towards the extremely likely end of the spectrum regardless of whatever form it's in it might just need rubber stamping at board level and then a formal announcement um i would be i would be very surprised if we don't have honda back on the grid in 2026 and very surprised if we don't have them powering an aston martin which is a great prospect for formula one but obviously there were concerns about how well advanced they are with the uh with the program etc but i guess Val, it's a logical move for Aston Martin, isn't it? Because there's good reasons why you want a works engine deal. Yeah, it's a very good, a very logical reason. I mean, first of all, it's a, it's a demonstrably great engine now. I mean, yeah, it's going to be a different engine in 2026, but there's no, there's no reason now to think that Honda hasn't hacked this particular part of the engine formula. And yeah, they're going to be a bit delayed in their 2026 plans relative to somebody like Audi, I guess. But... You know, they have the pedigree, they have the recent track record of success, they have proven that you know they can be a really, really valuable uh, factory partner. You know, obviously, if, if the McLaren tenure might have turned people off, then the Red Bull tenure showed that the McLaren tenure you know, wasn't quite what it seemed. So it makes all the sense in the world, and in fact, is a tremendous coup for, for Aston Martin if they do, if they do secure it. Uh, I'm not surprised that you know the likes of McLaren and Williams were sniffing around. Honestly, I'm maybe more surprised that they didn't prolong it more. They didn't take it further in because now it sounds like neither McLaren nor Williams will will have that engine deal. And it's a it's a primo opportunity. And Aston is you know the best team on the grid right now looking for something like this. It's, you know, its aspirations aren't to be a successful client. Its aspirations are to be a, you know, a championship force. Okay, you know, it's still a little bit weird in my head, the idea of having, you know, car manufacturer, car manufacturer F1 team. So like Aston Martin, Honda, Ford Opel, Audi, BMW. I don't know. It's it's a bit strange to me. It's like if you're a car manufacturer, it feels like you also should be doing the engine, I guess. But that's just, you know, that's just appearances and my naivete i guess and they'll you know they'll figure out a way to to make it work synergetically in terms of marketing it's also it's also worth considering as well that the the aston martin works team is a slightly unusual version of a works team isn't it in that there is there's common ownership and they clearly lean into the brand legitimately and they 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 leverage all elements of the, the 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 Aston Martin identity properly which which is really good um but the t- but it's a separate they're separate entities. Aston Martin as an F1 team is Team Silverstone of, of years gone by. Um, and it, they, they've got a brand new factory, wind tunnel, all of that state-of-the-art facilities. It's not like they've then absorbed it onto the Aston Martin, you know, any Aston Martin road car campus or or, or, or anything. So um, it, it's all about using the, the race team to, 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 to boost the brand. And I think... It, I, I, I suspect it would be a little bit more of a conflict if you had some kind of uh, like Ferrari-like um, situation or 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 whatever. I mean, I mean, F1 works teams are slightly strange setups these days. Anyway, I think it's just what what suits the the the, the end goal. And if the end goal is to make the team as successful as, as possible, it needs a works engine, but it's not going to be able to do a works engine itself. The only alternative would be to outright buy a company and then basically build that engine under the Aston Martin name, basically like Mercedes um, with the Bricksworth facility or Red Bull powertrains, which is going to have the, the you know, the Ford name on it. The, they, these, these aren't out and out 
engines built by these manufacturers and yet they carry the name so it's just i think it's just part of where f1's gone to in the modern day is if it if it's a means to an end ultimately no it's absolutely not a not a criticism of aston's decision i don't for a second suggest that they should be assembling you know an engine in silverstone when there's such a good engine partner going without an attached team right now this makes all the sense in the world and even if there wasn't the, the team clearly isn't expecting or positioning itself to uh to make its own engine it's just again it's it's my point was entirely optics it's funny to have you know one car make supply another car make with engines the thing is like ideally maybe it'd be a racing team name and then a car manufacturer engine but the last time they tried to do a racing team name they came up with racing point so maybe aston martin honda's fine you know I think we. I think one of the things that we need to find out in terms of the details is exactly how it's going to work on on the branding side. What are they going to do? Is it going to like? I would be surprised if Honda makes the decision to build an engine for twenty six and then let someone else take the name. So my, my expectation would be Aston Martin Honda, um, especially as um, I Honda wasn't keen to do a deal like Ford has done with Red Bull. That 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 was on the table. They they could have done that, but. The idea of um, the, the the idea of you know minimal input and then cashing in on someone else's technology wasn't wasn't what Honda was was willing to do. They 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 felt that I think if they were going to be in F one and say they were in F one, it had to be with their tech. Whereas Ford, for example, are quite happy to just do a cash for stickers deal where they spend a load of money and are given the benefit of the doubt, maybe put a bit of technical input into the engine as well. And then call it a Ford. Uh, that, great if that if you're willing to do that. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and question different manufacturers' integrities or anything like that. If if that is what is okay for your brand to pretend that it's your technology in someone else's car, then crack on. But that doesn't feel like the Honda way of going about things. So so I can only assume it will be a, a full Honda Honda situation. And you'd have to assume that given Honda's been wavering for quite some time and there's been the internal battles about it, how competitive Aston Martin is has had to have had a part in making Honda more likely to commit across the board. And that would also suggest to me that, therefore, some kind of deal where you're just supplying engine services, possibly in exchange for money, which I'm sure has been discussed with McLaren and Williams as well, isn't really the objective. There's also a, actually, we want to win and we want this to be good for Honda. So would you think, Scott, that Aston Martin's great leap forward has tipped the scales in favour of this happening quite decisively? I think so. I think it's it's partly that, as you say, like, that makes them look a more attractive option. But when you consider it from the Honda point of view, that, that is just out and out the 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 best, the best choice that, that you can make in the same way that that Aston Martin doesn't have a better option or another option really if uh, if it wants to have a works engine deal because the other power unit manufacturers either signed up for 2026 and beyond or considering an engine in the next generation like General, General Motors, for example, they all have works teams that are going to be associated with those projects. So Aston Martin would be second fiddle there. Um, that's that's great for Aston that Honda's an option. Likewise for us, Honda, it's great to 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 be the option there for for Aston Martin. They're upwardly mobile, but in a, in another way as well. Um, we we do see a lot of investment at McLaren, for example, with the the wind tunnel and simulator that are finally coming online shortly. Um, and 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 Williams is at the start of what it intends to be a, a long term recovery. But Aston Martin is much more competitive in the here and now. Has incredible facilities that are either accessible shortly with the new factory that they'll move into imminently or start moving into imminently, the the the, the wind tunnel simulator, etc. that they're doing there. But the might of a massive car manufacturer behind it, this big, big medium-term project from Lawrence Stroll, who never loses, as he likes to to, to remind us, and and he's going to be um, aimed to be a title-challenging team within within the next few years. It's a great thing for, for Honda to... to to latch onto, if you're trying, ultimately Honda's Honda's loss of Red Bull is entirely self-inflicted. It has thrown away a partnership with the dominant team of this generation of a Formula One car. It, it could have had an, an entire era of success with Red Bull, and Honda has completely thrown that in the bin with short-term thinking and, and, and panicked reasoning just a couple of years ago. It's now trying to unpick that 
But one of the consequences was you are going to have to find a lesser partner. But if this is a lesser partner, it's the lesser of the lesser partner evils. <laughs> now, we talked about Fernando Alonso a lot on our last podcast episode. But Val, do you think that this move would be good news or bad news for Fernando Alonso? Obviously, he would turn 45 in the middle of 2026, but he's showing no signs of of backing off. There's a lot of history there with Honda. So do you think if you're Alonso, you're thinking, oh, this is great. This might mean there's a final step and I'll still be there. Or might, might he be thinking, mm, this is probably reduced my chances of continuing longer term? Honestly, I struggle to imagine that he was foreseeing continuation to 2026. I mean, his current deal is what, two plus one? Let's even assume he he does that plus one. So that takes him through 2025. But is he, does he really sign a new deal at that point? Even if there's no performance drop-off at all, I mean, maybe it's Fernando Alonso. He, he might do it, and in that case, I mean, if he's if he's performing at the level that he's performing right now, obviously those you know those cuts with Honda run deep, but everybody's just gonna swallow their pride at that at that sort of circumstance if the performance is still at this level. I don't I don't think it's gonna materially affect things uh, one way or the other. So yeah, but I just I don't ex- I don't see him continuing to 2026, and maybe that's you know maybe that's just me being wrong and short sighted. But that's as you know as the internet puts it, he can't keep getting away with this. He can't keep defying Father Time. Sooner or later, Aston Martin will have to think of a driver succession plan, and I think that will be sooner than 2026. With all due respect to what, to what Fernando Alonso is doing right now. Yeah, and the other problem is that. With Aston Martin taking this big step forward this year, if that Honda deal becomes fully signed, sealed and delivered, then Aston Martin by 2026 is going to be very, very attractive as an option for various drivers. There's a lot of good drivers around there. And I think Alonso in 26 with Aston Martin, assuming he wants to continue, that's a big question. You can see plenty of pragmatic reasons why it would make sense to carry on. But then if there's other options around a Leclerc or a Norris or you know there's a there's a number of drivers operating at a seriously high level then that could uh, could change things but yeah i think it may well be that alonso thinks that's a good time to stop anyway but at the same time knowing him if aston martin continues to get stronger over the next couple of years but isn't quite to title challenging level he will crave that championship shot that 2026 could possibly give we must remember that it's still, you know, any sort of decision that will have to be made is presumably still a good 24 months away. And a lot can and will happen in 24 months. And if Fernando Alonso does want to continue with a Honda-powered Aston Martin beyond 2025, that deal will already be in place well in advance by the time that the, the contract decisions and the drivers are being made, presumably. Um He'll have the time to try to do what he needs to do to make sure that particular bridge is sufficiently mended to make it work. And again, if he's performing at the level he's performing now, then it will be in Honda's interest to, to try to, to mend it as well. And maybe I'm downplaying the amount of sour grapes that that particular relationship ended with previously. But I think, you know, in F1 and generally in sports, but particularly, I think, in, in motor racing, if there's competitive reasoning and you know a will behind the competitive reasoning, there's there's a way. There's always a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to throw to you, Ed. Actually, a, a quick question, which was uh, which element of the reunion are you looking forward to the most? The prospect of GP2 engine Alonso uh, back with Honda, or the prospect of uh, Team Silverstone reuniting with with Honda after what obviously happened with Jordan back in the day. Yeah, they had a lot of success, both as a proper Honda engine and the, the Mugen Honda engine. I must admit that it didn't happen quite enough for there to be big nostalgia element for Jordan Honda. I think it's because you don't really associate Jordan with any one engine manufacturer because they did chop and change quite a lot over the years. So uh, yeah, it, it's better nostalgia than if they tied, uh, they'd been doing a deal with Yamaha, given how that went in 1992. <laughs> I'm, sure, but, I'm sure Gary Anderson would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I must confess, I don't... It's nice, and there's a there is some history there. It's always nice when there's some history, but it's not kind of a. You think of Honda teams, it takes a while before you get down to to Jordan. So it's nice, but I'm not. Uh, it doesn't stir the soul like the McLaren Honda thing did. No, no, I, I agree with that. But I, I, your your answer does surprise me slightly because I, I'll flip it. While while I don't necessarily think of Honda when I think of Jordan, 
if I think of Mugen and I think of Honda, I think of Jordan. Do you see what I like? If it's that way around, I think like that I can I picture those 98, 99 cars in particular. That's what I'm thinking. And I would love it if we ever got to a point where F1 properly embraced retro liveries, a 2026 Aston Martin Honda in, in yellow and black. I'd be absolutely in favour of that. And of course, Mugen's still very heavily involved. They are the uh, they're, they're sort of on-the-ground preparation. Well, not on the, they're the sort of engine preparation side, aren't they? There's a Mugen facility in the, in the UK. So yeah, that, that's still part of the whole Honda story. Obviously, Mugen and Honda have got... They're, they're not the same company, but they've had extremely close ties for obvious reasons. Probably not the time to get into the history of Mugen, but it is quite an interesting story if you want to look it up. But great news for Formula One across the board if and when this is official because that means we'll have what six proper different engine suppliers come 2026 plus you'll have sort of gm hanging around the gm cadillac thing that may or may not be there that's not going to be their engine but that's really good news for formula one ideally you'd have six engine manufacturers supplying two teams each that would be the best symmetry obviously not happening not going to work that way never works that neatly it just reminds me of the you know of the current MotoGP situation where MotoGP would like ideally to have a bike manufacturer with one satellite team, one factory team, one fat satellite team, four bikes, and instead it it has Ducati with eight bikes and the rest of the grid much more diminished than that. And I wonder if we're going to come to a situation like that somehow in 2026 with the engine dispersion or if the FIA is going to figure out a way to to create a more even supply, I guess, somehow through subsidies or whatever or just forcing people to do it through regulations. Well, yeah, with uh, with six engine manufacturers, there will be a little bit more pressure to spread them out a bit more. And obviously that puts an interesting situation for the teams that have to do deals. Obviously, Williams has talked about likely staying with Merck, but they'll need to do their new deal. Obviously, there's going to be a little underclass, but hopefully not such a big underclass as has sometimes been the case in, in F1 history. But yeah, all very positive. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on to another of F1's works teams, Val. During the Miami Grand Prix weekend, Alpine Cars CEO Lauren Rossi had some pretty choice words for what he clearly sees as his underperforming F1 team. Were you in any way surprised by what he said? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And yeah, it was it was quite exciting to go watch the Canal Plus interview using my hilariously limited high school French, which has only grown more limited since since I, I've stopped bothering with it effectively. And, but realizing that I was picking out some some choice words, including I'm not going to parrot his pronunciation, but oh, what did he say dilettantism? What did he say? I did parrot his pronunciation for some reason. That's a terrible decision on my part. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he's, he really laid into him in that in that interview. Then obviously there was also the Formula One.com interview, which was also ar- arguably even more harsh because it gave us the line: "The buck stops with Otmar." Otmar being the current. Team principal Otmar Safnauer. Um, I was surprised. I was not shocked. I was just like surprised in the moment. Like, ooh, this is something that's going on. I guess if if you if you told people how Alpine performed and scored in the first four races compared to its preseason rhetoric, and then told them, and the and the CEO will go on TV and say some really not nice things about that. I I don't think you would be shocked. Also because. Uh, Laurent Rossi clearly shoots from the hip in how he addresses the media. So yeah, I was I, I was not surprised. They're not having the season they promised, uh, which you know for me that's not a problem because I I like it when F one teams are honest in what they promise and what they expect. And if they set a target that's higher than what they're actually capable of, I I appreciate the honesty more than I'm interested in putting them down for it. But yeah, I mean, Alpine is still not having a very good season, even in hindsight of of Miami. Miami was good. They scored decent points. They scored all the points that were available to them. But that's still, you know, as the fifth best team, which is not what they want to be this year. 
Yeah, I have to say it's uh, it smacked a lot of a uh, of a CEO who wanted to take responsibility himself for any success and shed the responsibility of the failure, which I think. Yeah, it's good to be realistic, but I think there was a political angle to that as well. And Scott, uh, obviously you know plenty of people within Alpine. It doesn't sound like it's, if there was any desired positive effect, it certainly hasn't had that quite why you'd think that would have positive effect. But yeah, not gone down well. No, um, I don't think it has. It's a, it's a tricky one to judge because, uh, especially because, of, because a lot of what Rossi said is true. Like, like, like it's difficult to find a lot of fault in, in his claims, I, the bit I do question is whether he says that the results are really befitting of of all the resource because a lot of F one teams have put a lot of F, a lot of money into their projects over the last decade. I don't think it's a given that Renault has necessarily out invested other teams in in in, in that midfield. Um, I think that certainly they have underperformed this season specifically in the first few races. But actually, I I think that team is about. Where, where it should be when it gets everything right. It's fourth or fifth best. What, why wouldn't it be? Endstone is a, uh, I, and I mean this with absolutely no disrespect to the people there or or the effort that they're putting in in try, terms of trying to improve it, but infrastructure-wise, Endstone is a limited facility. It just is geographically limited, but also just in terms of the investment that's gone into it to try and recover from the from the lack of investment at the end of the, the, the Lotus stint. So I, I, I seriously question that element of what Rossi said. I think he needs to look a little bit more closely at exactly what they've got to to work with before he he makes too big a, a declaration. The, the the rest of it, the underperformance, the fact that they're not learning lessons, the frustration, I understand all of that. And I think to a degree, Alpine did need to have senior management get a, a fire lit underneath their backsides. I, I wrote this in, in a piece that's run this week on 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 the website but i just think there are more sensible ways to to, to go about it that that alpine team they it was so bad after baku that team knew that it wasn't good enough that it had failed um to to start the season properly and risked failing outright with its goals for for this year i think they will fail to meet their goals this year i think they'll they'll do well to finish fifth at, uh, at this rate let alone fourth and closer to the top 3 as targeted this is already known. I don't really see what doing a massive public blast on 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 television and then doubling down in a separate, more coordinated interview with Formula One itself really, really achieves beyond shifting the blame away from Rossi as Alpine CEO, who took took a lot of the credit last year when things with saying how good a job Otmar was doing and and the fact that the team finished fourth in the championship. He was happy to. To, to claim the credit for, for that. But now he's shifting the responsibility of the bad times and fixing the bad times onto, onto the Endstone side. It just, it just, at a time when the Endstone side have tried to preach a lot of unity and to say that they're working a lot better as a works team in terms of the actual design and development of the car and the package with the engine, to then have an attack from the CEO who's a part-timer effectively in the F1 operation he just comes and goes as he pleases that doesn't scream unity to me that that's that tells me the opposite yeah, ultimately i mean harsh words aren't going to make the aero work better aren't going to make the the chassis more efficient aren't going to make the drivers quicker over one lap i mean i i'm not sure i'm a massive believer in the hair dryer treatment as they call it in football i guess in other sports, but I particularly don't really see how it works in Formula One. Maybe longer term, but certainly not for a uh, 2023 course correction. And yeah, as Scott said, you know, the target of fourth, they're not doing that. It's pretty obvious at this part of the season. I think they will finish fifth because I think the car is not bad, which is just not bad. It's, you know, even in light of the targets that they set in the preseason, I think They've been close enough to the stragglers of the big three to where you can be reasonably encouraged. And, it, you know, in Miami, ultimately, Pierre Gasly ran out of steam, but he had a, a decent shot of finishing ahead of a, a Ferrari and a Mercedes in that race, more or less on merit, did ultimately drop off. But the gap is not huge, which, you know, obviously we all talk about Ferrari and Mercedes massively underperforming this year, but they wanted to close the gap to them. And I think they did. Um, I think it's I, it's it's an obvious thing to say, but neither of these two interviews happen if Aston Martin doesn't do what it did this season. 
and that's clear. That's I think that's clear for everybody. If 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 the Aston thing doesn't happen, then Alpine is fourth best again. A, a fairly convincing fourth best in terms of car pace with some execution problems that you allowed time to to rectify. I mean, one of the execution problems was just you know Gasly making a restart mistake at Melbourne. I mean, that's that'll happen. You can also point to the fact that. Well, it's not really the race team's fault, the current race team's fault, that they've downgraded a little in the driver lineup. They've let Fernando Alonso go. They've lost him. You're going to be a little bit worse off. I mean, well, Ocon and Gasly, they're pretty closely matched now. I'd say Ocon has the, the initial edge a little bit right now, but it's not huge. I don't know Ed, Ed, if, you've, if you've noticed any particular trend between those two. But, but last year, Fernando was regularly... Ahead, not not a ton ahead, but ahead. So if you've lost that extra bite of performance, that's going to have a an effect. So, so yeah, I I'm I'm trying to to, to paint like a, a reasonable picture of their season so far. I mean, it's just what we're like at twenty twenty five percent in. Uh, it probably was not necessary, no. But I also I also I guess I understand the emotional reaction after Baku because Baku was such a. Ugh, such a horror show and now after Miami where they've proven they can they can bounce back from that pretty nicely I guess we we're able to put that emotion to the side whereas maybe for Laurent Rossi that wasn't the option when he was doing those interviews I I, I completely agree that um uh, that, that it's, a, it's it's an understandable reaction from a from when you're emotionally and financially invested in trying to make this as um like like work as a as a team and there's a lot that Rossi has done and said and done since he came in going back to when I interviewed him in late 2021 where it felt like actually he he came in from the outside and saw elements of complacency and um almost lethargy within the um within the organization that he felt needed to be addressed um, and and I thought there were some you know some real home truths that that sit, that setup on both the Enstone and Viri side really needed to hear. Um, there's been a lot of change over the last twelve to eighteen months as a result of that. One of them being obviously Otmar coming in as uh, as team principal. But there are two things that I think uh, I think are just can almost conveniently overlooked in when there are rants like this. Is is first of all. I think Rossi's hiding behind the negative impact that he's had on their fortunes in in, in recent recent times. You, you mentioned the the Alonso situation there, Val. I mean, that is almost entirely Rossi's fault. He drove Alonso away by making Alonso feel like he was being doubted and his age was being questioned by with, with the the contractual negotiations they had. And now for so now for Rossi to hide behind, oh, the drivers definitely aren't the problem here. We're letting them down with the machinery, which is one of the things he has has suggested or certainly at least implied. I think that's disingenuous because Alonso doesn't make the mistake that Gasly made at the restart in, in, in Melbourne. And in general, I think he's getting more out of that car than either of the two current drivers are. So so to 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 act as if the, the basically the main thing you were responsible for in undermining the organisation hasn't had any impact, I I just think that is disingenuous. Um, and then the second thing is you, he hired Otmar. He hired Otmar, and last year talked him up as one of the best decisions he's ever made. A few months later, that same team principal is almost being thrown under the bus and basically being said you need to sort this out. Um, and it feels a little bit like. I mentioned this earlier, like, like Rossi wanting to take responsibility for the good things and then shift the responsibility aside for for, for the bad things. And I am not a particular fan of, of of Otmar. I think since the Racing Point era of the of Team Silverstone, I, I I think he has struggled in the limelight as as team principal as a bit of a yes man for Lawrence Stroll and having to justify things there that I didn't really feel he believed in. And then being caught in the middle of the driver's saga at Alpine last year, that wasn't a problem of his making. He had nothing really to, to to do with that, but he had to front up to it. And, you know, he's a he's a defender of his team. He looks after his people. So he takes positions in public that I think we as journalists take issue with at times because it comes across as dishonesty. So I I, I don't have a strong opinion either way on him. But I think if you if he's been brought in to 
try and fix an organization, and I'm talking about the Endstone side here specifically, that has underperformed quite a lot and had some deep-rooted problems within it, whether that's on the technical side, the operational side, whatever it is, you, you can't expect that to be fixed in 12 months. I think that's just really naive to think he can step in and suddenly turn it into an absolute crack F1 team in, in 12 months. If he is the right man for the job, and I'm not saying he is, but Lauren Rossi thought he was, and a few months ago was talking him up as the best thing that's ever happened in the history of anything ever, then you have to give him the time to actually sort it out. The Alpine 100 race plan, which was a reset of the original five-year plan from Renault, is a long-term project. Just just emotionally overreacting and threatening consequences before the end of this season even when it's not quite going as quickly or as smoothly as you want it to I think it's just I think that just shows a fundamental lack of understanding in F1 even if there are genuinely clearly issues that need to be resolved on the endstone side yeah I you mentioned the plan and you know I said earlier in this podcast that I, I like it when teams are honest about the targets but I will caveat that by saying Multi-year plans can get in the bin. Yeah, in public. In private, I realize that you need for investors, for the board, you need to lay out a certain thing. And then it's easier also in private to explain why you didn't quite reach it if you didn't reach it, which usually you won't, I think, in, in Formula One. But it's just so much is dependent on the on the stuff that happens around you with the other teams. I don't think you can reasonably set a certain competitiveness target multiple years in advance. And what, uh, the Renault Alpine side's done it twice now, and it's bit them once, and it's could bite them again. Um, maybe just don't, don't take that kind of thing public. Just say we're, we, we aim to be at the front within a couple of years or something. Don't. Don't make it a specific time frame. Don't make it a specific race frame. Yeah, maybe that's just me nitpicking. But the, you know, the other is they. You know, we've both said that they've downgraded the driver lineup, but it, you know, they, it is also too important to make concessions. And I think it, it would just be important for for them to lean on the the idea of this still being a, a fairly young team. You know, with with Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly, a young team, a new team, a new sort of driver setup. Uh, it's a convenient thing to say when both drivers have triple-digit Grand Prix starts, which they do. So you can't really exactly pretend that they're rookies or new on the F1 scene. But, you know, with Gasly coming into the setup with, you know, Fernando Alonso's veteran acumen leaving for Silverstone, it's, it's a bit of a reset that you'd hope would buy you also some time on that side and buy you a few extra races to really properly figure things out. Uh but clearly that is not that is not the view of of Rossi who clearly had this lineup and this team in mind as delivering instant instant results instant gratification this year yeah rossi does have the uh, ultimately of a, a ceo who wants to take credit for successes and shrug off anything that goes wrong as not down to him the point you make i think about the the kind of corporate plans three-year plans, the five-year plan, the 100 race plan, as as we have at the moment, which officially the countdown started last year, even though Rossi first talked about it in 2021 and seemed to tie it to the start of the Alpine rebrand. But uh, anyway, one of the things you do get in the corporate world is, you know, when you have a three-year plan, realistically, so much will have changed by the third year that the landscape won't look like your predictions. And some, they'll do five-year plans as well, and like years four and five are completely uh, uh, nowhere. But I think it's much harder to do that sort of thing for race teams and you have to recalibrate targets and it would have been much more constructive if Rossi, which as far as I know, unless I've missed it in what he said, he didn't kind of offer a recalibration, which needs to be done because as has been referenced, they're not finishing fourth this year, let alone a closer fourth to the top three. They're just not doing it, but they should and can finish fifth. So what he needed to say is, look, we've got a car good enough for fifth. The performance is there. So just, you know, bad start but just make sure you hold on to fifth place that's okay concentrate on the gap to the front and in fact within the team they're all about the gap to the front in terms of percentage i asked otmar what exactly is your metric for this and he said what any sensible team boss would say well it's actually percentage deficit because you'd rather be 0.8 of a percent down and sixth than two percent down and fourth but this is where the, the, the problem is, where 
and I, I say this being very, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm getting too personal with it, where it, it feels like there's too much personal pride and ego slipping into the, the situation. Because one of the things that Rossi has said is that he won't change the targets because he doesn't want to make life easier or more comfortable for the people because then it's easier to hit that target. But that's just... That that's just so frustratingly not reflective of reality. Like like the the the, the, the situation now is yet yeah, yes, you 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 cannot change the fact that you set one target at the start of the year and his, history you will not be judged on the fact that if you change your targets and then finish fifth, people aren't going to suddenly just go, oh, what a great season that was for Alpine. They really hit their target that year and finished fifth. No, it's on record that you wanted to finish fourth. It will it. It will still be there as a reflection of failure for the team. You will still be able to use that if you want to, to justify changes that you think need to be made. But to then just turn around and say that, just just outright say you're not going to adjust the tar- the targets to reflect the reality, that's nonsense. What what if Ferrari were going around now just saying, just like, a, well, our target still has to be the World Championship this year. You you would sound utterly, utterly ridiculous. You, you Of course you need to, of course you need to aim high, but the way it has played out, which is exactly what you've just said, Ed, is that, that they cannot finish, they, they just will not finish fourth and closer to third than fifth this year. That they, will, they would need the, the mother of all turnarounds to get anywhere close to finishing fourth, let, let alone the closer to third thing. So I just, I just do not see the harm in saying, as if you're not bothered about some kind of weird ego thing like, well, I said at the start of the year we needed to finish fourth and I'm not going to be made a fool of, so therefore we have to still aim to finish fourth. Just say, we wanted to finish fourth, we're going to fail to hit that target, the best thing we can do from here is X. That's fine. I I, I really, I just don't see what the problem with that is. And it, it would be every bit as stupid to continue with, a, with an unattainable target as it would be to, let's say, Alpine was leading the championship right now. It would be absurd to say, well, our target was to finish fourth and a better fourth, so we're sticking with that. No, the parameters have changed. That's well, it's like what, Ferrari that's what last year. That's Ferrari last year, where where they started the season really strongly. It was originally considered to be a transitional year, try and get back into regular wins, and then the championship fight would come afterwards. But they started the season in championship contention. So, of course, the season was a failure by comparison, because the way it was playing out, it, it changed things. You had an opportunity there that you didn't grasp. Like... like situations change and your expectations around them have to change within it. It doesn't mean, like I said, you can still get to the end of the year and judge things overall on your preseason expectations versus how it played out versus how it could have played out in, in reality. That That's all part of the process of reflecting on your performance and working out where, where, where to improve. But 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 targets targets are not fixed. They 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 are malleable depending on circumstances. It doesn't that that doesn't mean you just change things, you know, just completely ad hoc ju- just to get yourself off the hook. But it's just about not being naive or intransigent or or, or anything else. It's got to be hilariously demoralizing to hear. It's like imagine being a a Champions League player for a team that's been eliminated in the group stage. And the next match in the dressing room, the manager is like, okay, our target is still to win the Champions League. You think, <laughs> you think, what? What are you talking about? And of course, Alpine has the mathematical possibility of finishing fourth. But look, let's be real here. We all, we've all seen the races. We all know where this is going. Unless they get one of the teams ahead of them disqualified for something, they're not finishing fourth. So it's, it's just, it's got to be a weird feeling to be in that team and hear that and think, well, what, what, are we, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to make this actively impossible thing at this point happen? Do you want us to go back in time and redesign the car based off what we've seen of the of the rival cars so far? Do you want us to build the, the DeLorean? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, obviously there's threats about changes down the line. And I do think that when push comes to shove because of the role Rossi's had in it, if he decides that Otmar is responsible for it, then I think also Rossi carries responsibility. And I think you'd have to question also his role fundamentally, whether that's just his role with the F1 team and he needs to keep a wider, he needs to keep away from it or the wider Alpine cars role. To be honest, I've no idea how effective he is as CEO of Alpine, the car brand, because I'm not an automotive journalist. But certainly when it comes to F1, he's proving himself not to be a great operator. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Right, well, Scott, let's talk about our old friend Daniel Ricciardo, who regularly crops up on this podcast, certainly with amazing frequency for someone who's not even in a race seat at the moment. But there was excitement last week when there was this news of a seat fitting with Alpha Tauri, of course, the team he drove for in 2012 and 2013, and it's Toro Rosso guy. So does this mean alarm bells for Nick De Vries, as some have suggested? I think the alarm bells are ringing for, for De Vries independently of this. So it, it, the, the, my understanding is that Ricciardo had this seat fit before Miami, um, because Miami was the second race he was attending this year on site uh, after Australia. And when he does these races on site and Liam Lawson's not around, Ricardo is the reserve that, that's on hand. He's the reserve for both teams because that's how Red Bull effectively operates when you don't just have a plethora of uh, reserves handy within you know an hour's flight in Europe or something like that. So Ricardo had to have this seat fit just in case he was called upon. You might remember the images of him being, you know, fitted in the in in the Red Bull in 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 Melbourne. Um, you know, he 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 is on a marketing deal there as third driver, but there are some sporting elements to that deal. So he wasn't in Faenza in the days after Miami because Red Bull's lost patience with De Vries and Ricardo is ready to jump in at a moment's notice for that reason. It's, it, I think it's disconnected. Where they could get connected is if. Um, is if Red Bull's patience on De Vries does run out in, in the short term and Red Bull decides actually having Ricardo around and seeing some progress with him on the simulator, this could be a really useful opportunity to do a bit of a short-term trial um, and just see if he's a realistic contender long-term for whatever reason if they felt the need to replace Sergio Perez. I think that's the I think that's the reality. The, the, the De Vries... The context of De Vries' rookie season is crucial here. You know, he is under pressure. He, I think he'd be under pressure whether Ricardo was in that organisation or not. We've had a few, you, you hinted at it, we've had a few questions over the last few weeks from from listeners on the likelihood of Liam Lawson replacing De Vries. And, and I, I, I'm i not going to revise history here. I, I have been saying I'd be really surprised if they got rid of De Vries in season. I, I, surely they'll give him until the end of the year. But the suggestion now is that Helmut Marco, as quickly as he fell in love with De Vries last year around the Italian Grand Prix and his super sub appearance at Williams, seems to have fallen out of love with him now and, and, and has given him possibly even the next triple header of European races that De Vries knows a lot better um, to, to to up his game and, and keep him seat, keep his seat. Otherwise, personally, I think Lawson would be first in line, but it, it does sound like De Vries could, could have the axe swung before even the, the, the summer break. I must admit, I find the... The prevailing narrative around De Vries quite amusing because obviously last year he did a great job. That that such a good job he did at, at Monza, and I'm fed up of the revisionist history that some people are throwing around about this. If you get thrown into a car on Saturday morning, I don't care. He drove the Aston Martin, you own FP1, but he was thrown into a Williams he hadn't driven since what May was it Spain? He, he did yes. the third driver outing exactly. Yeah, he dropped in on Saturday. He was sat in Paddock Club in the morning when he basically got the the call to do it. He finished in the points in that car in a Williams. Yes. 
that was a competitive-ish car. Well, that's probably the most competitive weekend for that car. I'm sure if Albon had been in the car, he'd, he'd have done a bit better. But De Vries did a great job to jump in without adequate preparation, score points, didn't make mistakes, out-qualified Nicholas Latifi. That was an excellent job. He did really, really well there. And I think him doing that did merit him being bumped up a few notches in the driver market uh, position. However, that also created this overreaction in which suddenly where people were thinking, well, right, he can do an AlphaTauri season and he'll be in a Red Bull. It's like, well, no, he's still Nick de Vries. We know the strengths and weaknesses of Nick de Vries. He's perfectly capable of being a Grand Prix driver. He's not been a catastrophe this year. He's a rookie driver in his first full season. Yes, an experienced one. He's made some mistakes. He has had a bad start to the season. But... He's neither this catastrophic, disastrous driver who needs to be booted out now or a future world champion. He's sort of in the middle as a perfectly serviceable <laughs> Grand Prix driver. And I find it amazing Red Bull would be surprised to discover that. What I don't get is if w- whatever Red Bull expected of De Vries, I-, I don't understand why you wouldn't give him a much longer amount of time to actually realise that. that. That's what makes no sense to me. It was There was a, a degree of irrationality around hiring him in the first place in the manner that they did it, um, just purely because of the, the the lack of data and how short-term it seemed to be, the decision-making process. I, I completely agree with you, Ed, that there's a there's a vast amount of, um, after the fact, underestimation of the job De Vries did at Monza. And as I've, as I've written, um, if, you are, if you are ever going to take a situation and make a decision on a driver based on one single case study and that case study for De Vries happens to be Monza 2022, you are going to pick him if you are that way inclined because he did a very good job and it made him flavour of the month. Um, but now he's fallen out of uh, of favour and I just think that is that it, it's that same short-termism. That it, It's exactly the same mentality that got him into the, in, into the seat in the first place. I mean, you know, we know that Red Bull are the you know the masters of saying goodbye, the the sultans of sack, if you will. But there's <laughs> this is you know, why you're on the podcast, Val. Thank you. I, I had that one prepped. Uh, but yeah, if if there's you know if you look at Devries's gaps to Tsunoda, those are not firing numbers, are they? If you look at his mistakes in in Baku and Miami, they're not. You know, there's significant mistakes, but they're not firing mistakes for a driver six races into his Grand Prix career. And, you know, even the combination there is, it's just the sample size is, is not enough, is there? It, like, the only reason it would make a ton of sense is if, one, you had somebody in the pipeline who you realize now should have been there at the start of the season is like the next big, huge thing. And, you know, Liam Lawson's having a good season in Super Formula, but I don't, I don't think there's the impression that he's, you know, Max Verstappen or Charles Leclerc in the waiting. Of course, you know, they might put him in a flunker and it turns out he is, but not at the moment. I don't think there's that impression at the moment. Um, and, the, and the other would be, you know, it's that Red Bull impulsiveness and maybe there was the expectation that he'd just have Yuki Tsunoda completely handled very easily this season. And it's been it's been a shock to see that he hasn't. But he, honestly, if that was the expectation... And it's clearly wrong. And it, it does not take a Formula One analysis genius to have foreseen the circumstance that very talented, uh, embedded in Alpha Tauri young driver Yuki Tsunoda will have an edge over Nick DeVries to start their, their season together. I mean, that, again, if you ask me before the season, that was my likeliest outcome. And I'm stupid. But I, I could I could foresee this. So surely somebody at Red Bull should have and could have foreseen this. Um, it, look, if they're if they replace DeVries with your character right now, they're just not a serious team and a serious organization. There's, you know, it's just for me, that's not even a Red Bull tryout. For me, that's it's a marketing move to self sell off Atari shirts. It's not anything. There's not nothing sporting in it. There's a there's an inherent flaw, a big screw up somewhere in 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 this process. Whether it's right at the start with hiring De Vries in the first place, or now in binning him off, and again potentially being short term in how they view it, if they really only do it as as Ricardo. Um, if if Ricardo is genuinely of interest to Red Bull and some uh, and someone that they want to properly properly assess in a competitive environment or maybe even use to get a bit of a secondary benchmark for Sonoda who looks like he's doing a really good job this season I've been so impressed with him but if De Vries is properly struggling and properly underperforming 
it might genuinely be a benefit of Red Bull to get that that second reference. And Ricardo is probably a better reference for that than Liam Lawson would be. So so I don't think I, I honestly like I, I take your point on the commercial side, Val, and I and I think a commercial element would be an absolutely huge part of the decision. But I think there are potentially sporting merits to it. But what I would say is if Lawson is of genuinely interest to Red Bull and someone with it with that the organization wants to keep in the mix then as much as a Ricardo reunion with the junior team he left a decade ago would be a fun story, Lawson's a much better long-term pick. He, he's had a really impressive start in Super Formula. I think he's got a win and, t- and two other top five finishes in the first three races. So he's emphatically in title contention over there. That's a really difficult championship for newcomers to go into and adapt to immediately. He's It, it, it follows a slightly underwhelming... Uh, period in, in, in F2 and, and, and even and even before then where he's looked good but not great so he's gone out there and he seems to be doing what's been asked of him he's said to have impressed on his F1 outing so far and failing to trust in their own youth their own recruitment and making an irrational short-term decision is exactly what led to Red Bull throwing its usual driver policy for its second team out the window and hiring De Vries in the first place. So I, I, I really hope they don't make that same mistake if they do decide to replace him. They don't make that mistake with the the, the person that they recruit in, in his place. And I'd like to see Lawson given a go. What's one potential solution is a little bit like the ridiculous merry-go-round they had in seventeen. And letting Lawson finish out his super formula season because he's in title contention. You've given him the chance there. You've made a commitment to the team that he's driving for as well. He, I think off the top of my head, I think there are two clashes after this period that De Vries apparently has to prove himself. I think there are two direct clashes. You could put Ricardo in for those two events that Lawson's in Super Formula for and give the others to, 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 to Lawson or split them across the season. Rebel has done this kind of thing before, so that could be a halfway house. But I, as much as I want to root for the fun one of Ricardo going there, you know, old, older driver with something to prove up against Sonoda, young driver with something to prove, I think it would be a fascinating dynamic. I'm a big believer in giving you the chance if you think they're good enough. And for what that team exists to do and the competitiveness of it and the risk versus reward for Ricardo as well, I'd like to see Lawson end up getting that drive if they do replace De Vries. That, you know, I take the I take the, the benchmarking point of of you know of Ricardo versus Tanoa. I didn't really think of that, but yeah, that's it's completely right. And also I guess, you know, if you were just a regular midfield team, then that injection of experience and point scoring pedigree, even if there's no real long-term solution there. You know, that would make sense. It's just, it's not what AlphaTauri is really, I guess it's what it wants to position itself as, as a, you know, as, as some separate thing, but ultimately there's, there's a driver talent pipeline there to consider. And to begin with, if De Vries gets the axe right now, with Red Bull having, what, six juniors in Formula 2? Something like that, like five or six Formula 2 cars painted Red Bull? And a lot of them having already been on the scene last year. But yeah, if De Vries got hired over all of them, gets sacked right now, and then imagine even if not one of those juniors is selected to, to be in the car, who does that reflect badly on? Nick De Vries, the juniors? Who does that reflect? No, not for me. For me, I think it's pretty obvious who it reflects badly on. And this whole, this whole thing is just... I don't know how you get to this situation. And I... I, look, he comes up every time, and I, I feel guilty about it this time, but I've seen this movie before with Brendan Hartley. We're doing the exact same thing right now, and of course, DeVries might correct the trajectory the way Hartley never did, but honestly, like Hartley, DeVries' underperformance is being exaggerated by the system in which he's in and by the circumstances of his arrival as an outsider who impressed somewhere else and is now having the the shine taken off of him. Yeah, this is a position of their own making. And ultimately, with De Vries, he's neither a catastrophe nor being brilliant. He was never either. But while it's down to the driver to deliver and make the most of an opportunity, and he hasn't done that, so if they did decide to axe him, you say, well, ultimately, you could have prevented this by delivering. It's just not a it's just not a good scenario to put yourself in. We don't know exactly what he's been told. Clearly, the pressure will be massive on him, whether he's been given a explicit ultimatum or not. But it's never good when 
there's any kind of messaging, it's like shape up or you're out. It reminds me a little bit of the Antonio Pisonia situation with Jaguar when they put a load of pressure on him publicly and the fact they were trying to replace him with various drivers came very close to trying to get Alex Wurtz but couldn't get him out of, of McLaren and then said, yeah, we're committed to him. And then sure enough, what, five races to go, they axed him and replaced him with Justin Wilson because as soon as you get into that do better or we're sacking you kind of vibe, even if it's not explicitly stated, I can't think of actually any scenarios where that's been turned around, certainly not in uh, in, in modern times because it's just not how these things work. So the first order problem is Red Bull need to actually understand why they recruited De Vries and what they've got in De Vries, which is realistically a perfectly valid, decent enough F1 level driver, but he's never going to be one of the best drivers in F1. And I'm, it always seemed a little bit odd, other than as a stopgap in AlphaTauri, to, to sign him, really. But also, it wasn't a ridiculous signing because had AlphaTauri not swooped in, then I'm sure Williams would have signed him and have him in the Logan Sargent seat. And Williams knew a lot about him. So again, let's not pretend that he's worthless. I I just I wince thinking about Nick DeVries' Thursday session at Imola. Not, this is not going to be fun. It's yeah, not going yeah. to be fun. Yeah, that's going to be a, a challenging one for him. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, very difficult uh, scenario. And I think it probably does mean that wherever exactly he is on that trajectory, it's it suggests it's going to take quite a big turnaround in the short term to reverse whatever Red Bull decision and opinion that's turning against him. But yeah, to come back to the starting point of this, it would be a curious move to put Ricardo in, but we can't rule it out. However, I think the the the, the heightened excitement about oh he's having a seat fitting, he's about to replace him was was misplaced as Scott initially explained, given that he did need to have a seat fitting at some point with AlphaTauri in case he was required. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Val for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Check out our other podcasts, including our MotoGP podcast, where you find Val regularly cropping up. Notice he shoehorned in a little bit of two-wheel reference into this episode. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. Well, the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix is rapidly approaching, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.